have a seat. Michael, I'm going to change things up. I'm calling an audible, so you can just stay right there. You don't have to do the microphone run yet. Good morning. Is everybody happy? How are you doing that? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Rise and shine. That's our series. You want to have a mean parent woke you up in the mornings in like harsh ways, walk in your room and throw water on you, scream. So I'm the only one who did that to their kids, huh? I was just checking. I mean, I, you never know. So today we're going to talk about sacrifice, and uh, it's what I want to dig into. I have a couple things that we're going to try to do today. So let me give you a warning. I'm probably going to ask you to stand up in the middle of the sermon. Not right now. Peyton, go ahead, man. That was, that was awesome, all right? Not right now, but like in the middle. But we won't be done then. You'll have to sit back down, okay? So I'm just warning you because people get all excited. Oh, we're staying. We can leave now. Anyway, so I didn't want that to happen. <clears throat> this series is about waking up and, and waking up to spiritual realities and living in those. And today we're talking about sacrifice because when you are awake, when you are awakened to the things of God, and you wake, awaken to what God is doing in this world, it, it awakens you to live sacrificially, to lay down your life in ways, whether they may be for your family or for your church or for missions or for your community or those kind of things. And so I want to jump into Ephesians 5. Again, this whole series is resting on Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. And so let me read verses 1 and 2. Imitate God... Therefore, in everything you do. Say, imitate God. God. Not intimidating at all, right? I mean, seriously, here's a scripture that says, act like God acts. Interesting. Isn't that interesting? Give me, at least it's interesting, right? Okay, imitate God, all right? Therefore, in everything you do. Why? Because you are his dear children. Children look like and act like their dad. Okay? For better or for worse, right? Verse 2. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. Imitate God, follow Christ's example. Pretty simple. And I didn't say easy. The most profound things in life are simple, but not always easy. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. That's that's the text that we're actually talking about today. But I'm going to take two other scriptures to kind of explain it and try and embed it into our thinking, okay? But I wanted you to to get a hold of those first, so these are actually really easy to remember. Imitate God and follow Jesus, right? That's the, the instruction that Paul gives. And so when you come into Paul's letters, they're really practical, aren't they? I mean, this isn't You know, a lot of times people think about church and theology and religion, and they're like, well, it's just all, you know, so abstract and so mystical. But this isn't abstract or mystical at all. God says, I want you to imitate God, and I want you to follow Jesus Christ's example. And then he makes a reference to what Jesus Christ did, which was die on the cross for our sins. And so he's, the example of Jesus that he cites is that Jesus laid down his life and, and offered that life for us defining what love is saying that Christ loved us and therefore laid down his life okay so let's jump into the first text that I want to use to kind of break down what this means 
and I want to talk about Mary of Bethany. And it's a story that's recorded in your Bible in three different places in the Gospels. Let me read it, and then we'll come back to the, the background of it. Six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served, of course, right? Martha served. And Lazarus was among those who ate with him. And then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard. Maynard's my name, Maynard. I don't know if it was a family member, I don't know. And she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. And Jesus replied, leave her alone. I want you guys to say that. Leave her alone. One, two, three. Leave her alone. We're going to come back to that. I want it to stick, though. She did this in preparation for my burial. She will all, you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Is that not an awesome story? Now, for you guys, I, I just wanted to have a little, I don't know, a little snippet I wanted to attach to this little story in John 12. This is recorded in three different Gospels. In all three Gospels, the details waver a bit. There, one, one Gospel places it at Simon the leper's house. This Gospel places it at Lazarus' house. One Gospel puts it two days before the Passover. One Gospel six days before the Passover. The details are a little different, and there are explanations for those, but I'm not going to give them today because what I want you to understand is when you're in God's Word, you can't let things like that shake your faith. You've got to come at this knowing that this declares truth. And if you get lost in the details and you miss the simple truth that Mary of Bethany walked into a room full of men and just made an absolute utter fool of herself and cared not what anybody thought, because she loved Jesus, if you miss that, then you, you've missed everything. You can get all the details figured out. You can have all your facts in line. You can have explanations for every little nuance and not have faith. And it's more important that you catch what's going on. So let's catch what's going on. Let's climb into this little, this powerful story. We're, we're here and the 12 disciples are gathered around Jesus. They're having a dinner in His honor. Martha is in the kitchen. Of course she's in the kitchen. Martha's always in the kitchen. You're like, what's wrong with Martha? Nothing's wrong with Martha. She's also serving Jesus. The issue the other time that Jesus corrected her was not that she was serving food. It was that she was worried more about the dinner than she was about being with the person for whom the dinner was prepared. That's what Jesus was correcting. The house, the family of God needs servants who fix dinner or I would get skinny. We can't have that. Skinny is my worst nightmare. People say, nothing tastes as good as skinny feels, and they did not have the brisket I smoked yesterday, or they would disagree. Hard to light it, but anyway. In this room of, with all these 
clueless disciples. Man, I love the disciples. I love them after the day of Pentecost. Up to the day of Pentecost, they were annoying because they acted so much like I do. <laughs> and they're, I mean, to really get what's happening here, you've got to understand the week that has preceded this. And the, actually, the months leading up to this, Jesus has been telling these 12 guys, and Mary had to be on the periphery of this as he's doing it, but he's saying things, I don't know, they were veiled, like, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to arrest me, condemn me to death, torture me, and murder me. That's pretty vague, right? How would they know what was going to happen based on such a description? <clears throat> the Spirit is in the room, I'm telling you. Could someone shut that door or before the curtain blows off and destroys the speaker? Mainly just so I, if I get distracted again at my age, I can't get back on point. <clears throat> the thing is, all this time, the, Jesus had been preparing the disciples was, uh, for what was about to happen, and, and they, they did not get it. And so they're doing whatever guys do when they're around the table getting ready to eat. And in walks Mary. I hope I can get through this. Okay. Mary heard everything they heard. Something about God's daughters has always blown my mind. And, and I, I just want you ladies to know that in the church historically, you have not gotten enough credit. That's a fact. Of all these 12 disciples who are going to carry the gospel into the world, on this day, they were clueless. But Mary was not clueless. Mary walked into that room with these 12 guys around, and she had heard Jesus' words, and she may not have understood them any more than they did, at least on an intellectual level, but something about the heart that God put in Eve, that intuitive heart, that is able, to, in ways that we men cannot comprehend, to put together things in ways they cannot articulate. And Mary knew things were about to change. You cannot describe her actions outside of that. You cannot look at this moment and think that Mary was just doing a random act. Mary heard the same words the disciples did. They ignored it because we men are very good at ignoring the obvious. Say amen, men. Did you say amen? No, you didn't. Okay, I was just, just checking. Lori did. Lori did. Lori said, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just harassing Pastor Michael. And Mary stepped up and knew things were going to change, and she took an incredibly passionate action based on that. I can see her come in. I mean, if we were in the room... As I was trying to work through this in my studies, I was like, what if we stood over Judas's shoulder because he was the jerk in the scenario? And I'm like, nah, I don't want to be around that guy. Let's, let's go over to John because you know John. He's right up next to Jesus, and I, I'd like to see this as close to Jesus' perspective as possible, right? And Mary walks in, and man, I'm guessing she's wrecked already. And I, I, I'm, I'm guessing that she really doesn't care what the 12 morons think. I think that she is just walked in that room and it's like there's Jesus and it's tunnel vision and everything else is a blur and she's headed to the object of her worship in this moment. 
And I can only imagine the thoughts running through her mind. This is the man who found me when no one else was looking. The one who saved me when no one even cared that I was lost. The man who walked into my family after my parents are gone and put my brother and my sister and I back together again. The man who raised my brother from the dead. And you say you're about to suffer and I don't understand. But I want you to know that I love you. And you're the most important, most significant, and most powerful thing I've ever encountered in my life. I am forever changed because of you. Those are the kind of thoughts I imagine being in Mary's mind as she took a bottle of perfume that costs an annual wage. What do you make a year? That's how much it cost. And she took the the bottle that was filled with this ointment, and she broke it. Once broken, it had to be completely used. And she begins to pour it on Jesus. And to me, one of the most amazing parts of this story is that Jesus took it. He let her do it. He didn't stop her. He didn't correct her. He just reveled in it. Who does that? But Jesus did. And as she poured this expensive ointment over Jesus and the tears are flowing because she understands something that she doesn't even understand. And she begins to take her very own hair and wipe the ointment on Jesus' feet. The only towel she had. And in that moment... She displays worship, abandoned worship. I don't care what you think. This isn't about what's happening around me. It's about the significance of the one who inhabits me. It's about the one that I know within. In that moment, she smelled like Jesus. The very ointment that she brought, the perfume she brought to anoint Jesus' body, was covered her as well because she and Jesus inhabit the same moment. They inhabit the same worship together. Him receiving, her giving, and they both share in the scent, the odor that fills the room by this incredible, passionate move. And then she looked like Jesus. Because unbeknownst to Mary, she does not realize that what she is doing is she is demonstrating exactly what Jesus is about to do. She's taken a moment of the most precious thing that she has and filled it with this this fragrance, filled it with this worship, and she's doing exactly what Jesus is going to do in the next few days on the cross. As he, the most precious gift of God, is broken and spilled out himself. She smelled like him, she looked like him, she worshipped him in that moment. And here's what happened. And this is where we move into our understanding of sacrifice. Because of our natural inward focus, we often think that if we do anything for God, or if we try to do something that's right, that we're immediately going to be rewarded in some way. In Mary's case, she, could, she, 
she commits this act. She commits to this act of worship. And the first thing that happens is in verse Matthew 26, 8, the account of this, and we learn from John that it was Judas who said it, the disciples were indignant when they saw this. They were indignant. They were furious. It insulted them. Shameless worship is an insult to non-worshippers. They were insulted and they said, what a waste. This came from Judas' lips. The very man who's about to sell Jesus Christ for the price of a slave. So in Judas' mind, anything you give Jesus is a waste. What a waste. They did not understand. Jesus told them what was going to happen and not a one of them got it. It was Mary who understood And she entered fully in that moment, and she fully did not care what these 12 guys thought about her. She didn't walk into the room for their approval. This wasn't an act of worship so that others would admire Mary. This was all about Jesus. This was all about real love. And so in this moment of criticism I love what Jesus does leave her alone you leave her alone you don't understand what's going on in Mary right now she's the only one who knows and has heard what I said and actually listened to it you leave her if there is anybody in the word of God that knew that the best defense was Jesus it was Mary yeah remember when Martha was mad at her and Jesus comes to her defense again or the first time and now she's a a wreck at the feet of Jesus covered in perfume the room filled with the strong fragrance and being insulted by the clueless, and Jesus' response, you leave her alone. That's a defense. That's, that's our defense. That's not just Mary's defense. Because Jesus became our defense attorney when he rose from the dead, when he ascended on high and took his station at the right hand of the Father. To intercede for us in every moment, he became our defense attorney. And the accuser all the time is in the throne room throwing all your garbage in the face of God. That's what we learn from the book of Job. It's what we learn from Revelation that the accuser of the brethren lives to to accuse them. And, And Jesus' role is just like it is in this moment. Leave her alone. I want to pause in this moment and I want to ask you to stand with me. Let's stand together. And you're like, this is not how we normally do it. There is no normal at present, so we'll be okay. I'd like you to close your eyes, bow your heads a little bit, or just close your eyes. I just don't want you looking down. I want you to have a private moment with Jesus Christ, and I'd like to be a part of it if I could. I was on my way to church this morning, 
And I just felt like the Spirit was, t- was telling me, people are not okay, Michael. They're not okay. It's a strange season. We tell each other we're fine. We say, hey, hi, how are you? And we say we're okay, but we're actually not okay. If you were okay in our current current climate of cultural events, there would be something mentally wrong with you. They're not okay. And I'm not okay. Okay? (laughs) There's a lot of uses of the word okay. Heads bowed, eyes closed. And uh, I'm going to ask you, if if you're like here today and you're like, "I'm, I'm actually not okay, would you just raise your hand just for a second? If you could just pop it up. I'm actually not okay. I'm actually not okay. Just put it up and put it right back down. I'm just not okay. And then I want you to help me to do something. I want you to help me say, leave her alone and leave him alone. I want to take the words of Jesus and I want us all to say them together. We'll do leave her alone first because ladies first, right? And on the count of three, I just want us all together to say, leave her alone. You ready? One, two, three. Leave her alone. And now I want you to do it for the guys. Leave him alone. On the count of three. One, two, three. Leave him alone. Jesus, you hear our prayer. We're just echoing back to you what you said. You're our attorney. You're our defense. And the enemy is trying to take this not okay and turn it into something far worse. And I pray that you would defeat him in this moment and that every soul would hear you say over them to their enemy, leave them alone. In Jesus' name I pray. You guys can have a seat. I would say that's the halfway point, but I have no idea how long this sermon is. You're like, how are you supposed to know these things? Probably. I want you to hear what Jesus says after that moment. Matthew 26, 13, I tell you the truth, that wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. And here we are, 2,000 years after the fact, sharing her story again. But here's what I want you to see about it. Jesus connected her deed to the gospel. Jesus is saying that what Mary is doing in this moment is a display, an illustration of the gospel itself. We learn how good the good news is how impactful the good news is from Mary's actions. One of the best sermons in the New Testament didn't have any words in it. It was an act, a deed that prepared Jesus' body for burial. And that's Jesus' words, which shows us that Mary understood more than the disciples for sure what was about to happen. Isn't that beautiful? I hope it gave you some hope. Because what you need to understand, yes, I'm talking about sacrifice today. But you've got to understand that the reason sacrifice is possible for us is because of the sacrifice that has been made for us. Mary understood it before it happened. 
And because she acted on it, she was able to demonstrate the gospel in a way that we would not have had had she been a little bit more timid. And so as we dive into that text of imitating God, what do we do now? Well, first of all, we, we remember that any actions on our part that are for God or, to, or after Him or in pursuit of Him are based in what He has already done. As I prayed earlier, I, our identity in Christ is not connected to our obedience to God, but Christ's obedience to God. Does that, does that give us uh, license to be disobedient to God? No. It gives us power to be obedient to God, actually. And so... We ask ourselves what to do, and I go back to that verse. Imitate God, follow Jesus. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Imitate God, follow Jesus. How do I imitate God? What is God like? Isn't that a, isn't that a great question? Have you, ever, have you ever kind of stewed on that? You know, in your study, in your prayer time? God, what are you actually like? Because when you read the Bible, God's a little confusing, Right? I mean, if you start in Genesis and you read the Revelations, I think at least twice in there you'd get confused. Maybe three times. I'm just kidding. There'd be a bunch of times that you'd get confused. And, you know, I'm, my job today, my task is not to, to set God at ease in your mind. It's, he's not a safe God. He's not a, a tame God, okay? He is, he is wild and He is unpredictable. But there are some things about God that we can see, even in the Old Testament, which many of us are afraid to read. One of the things that we can see about God is that, that God is patient. God is so patient. I mean, if you read the Old Testament, and even though in there you see these very terrifying moments of God, He wipes out you know, people groups and things through the hand of Israel. And it's hard for us to comprehend that from our New Testament perspective. But if you don't understand those parts, if you don't get in those parts, you don't understand why the New Testament perspective is so powerful and so valid and how it even exists. And so you've got to realize, though, that through all of that, God was so patient. It wasn't like God was moody. Did any of you guys ever have a moody person in your family? Like one minute they loved you, the next minute you were trying to get the fork out of your chest that they tried to stab you with. You ever have someone like that? And sometimes that's how we think God is. We think God is like, he loves us, he hates us. He loves us, he hates us. That's not it at all. In fact, God is very patient. And we see that throughout the Old Testament. God is persistently pursuing his people. He's always going after them. He never quits on them. Even in the worst moments, even when he has judgment come upon them because they refuse to follow him, he never gives up. And historically, from the beginning to now, historically God has always been the pursuer and man has always been the one walking away millions upon millions of times man walks away from God and God keeps pursuing them <laughs> excuse me now God's patient but also God God would be patient so in your situation right now know that God would be patient if I'm going to imitate God I need to practice this thing called patience very easy for Americans to do while you're waiting on your microwave popcorn to pop and your 30-second coffee to be made. God would confront as well. God never just randomly woke up and said, Israel, that's it. You're a mess. You're out of here. Hundreds of years, <laughs> he would send prophets 
to call his people back. When Israel fell into, when the nation of Judah fell to Babylon, that came after five dynasties of kings had heard from the prophet Jeremiah that God was going to take Judah down because they would not return to God. This was not an out-of-the-blue ending to the nation of Judah. God, you, if you don't know where you stand with God, it's because you're not listening to God. Or you just don't believe the gospel itself. Okay? And so God is a God who speaks up and, and confronts. But also God is a God who gives. And all I need to say to that is his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. God is patient, God confronts, and God gives. So how am I supposed to act like God? How am I supposed to imitate God? Well, one, you should ask him. In your situation right now, whatever is creating the drama or the chaos or the not okayness that we're all experiencing in some way, now is the time to go to God and say, okay, God, teach me how to be like, how to imitate you here, how to act like my father here, and then to take steps based on that. But simply enough, you know he would be patient, he would confront the problem. God does not, God's not passive-aggressive. <laughs> He's assertive, not passive-aggressive. And he would also give. He would make sacrifice. And I believe if you ask him, he would lead you to the answer. So what would God do? Now, you guys remember that thing a few years ago? Charles Sheldon wrote the book, In His Steps. That was a long time ago. But it, it was, I don't know, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, the What Would Jesus Do stickers were everywhere, WWJD. People had them on their cars. And, you know, you saw them as they sped past you and cut you off in traffic. And, <clears throat> which is why I don't have much in the way of Jesus stickers on my car because I know sometimes I drive like a sinner and I don't want to make Jesus look bad. So, <laughs> anybody with me there? You can just got to get an amen. <laughs> That's why we don't have the Jesus. <clears throat> the leadership team's like, you should put ordinary faith on your car. And I'm like, no, I don't want to make the church look bad. <laughs> so, anyway, <clears throat> I'm kind of kidding. But anyway, so Ray Comfort did a series, an evangelism series called Way of the Master several years ago, and, and he changed what would Jesus do to what did Jesus do. And I've always loved that. Because the great thing about Jesus is we have all these Bible stories and, and accounts of things that Jesus actually did. Because a lot of times people say, what would Jesus do? And they begin to telescope onto Jesus what they actually want to do. And so if we're going to actually do, if Jesus is going to be our example, we need to observe his example and then do everything we, we can by even the Holy Spirit strength to accomplish that example. And as much as I would like to get into a lot of those stories, because of time, let me just take, let's not get into all the stories of Jesus' life. Let's just go to that one thing. Jesus died for us. He laid down his life for us. So what, what did Jesus do? Jesus sacrificed himself. There you go. Pretty simple. Imitate God. God's patient. God confronts. God gives. What's Jesus' example? He died on a cross. He sacrificed himself. It's actually very simple. If we could just begin to define our own lives, our own understanding of love based on what Jesus did rather than what the world tells us. I mean, uh, my wife likes Jane Austen uh, miniseries. That lady, I've never read a Jane Austen book. You're probably surprised that I have never read a Jane Austen. I mean, I, I watched uh, Sense and Sensibility, and I loved all that highfalutin stuff. 
It was very proper. <clears throat> and yeah. Anyway, there wasn't a fight in it. That's all I know. No one got hit. Well, maybe that, no, that one guy. That was close. That's right. You're right. It was. You know, and uh, she wrote some great books. And actually, my, it's a great date night with my, we enjoy that. Sorry, Steve. Uh, <clears throat> time together. But Jane Austen really didn't know much about love, actually. <laughs> Hollywood. Hollywood's always putting these rom-coms and these romantic movies, romance movies out there, and, and, and people get emotionally touched by them. But uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but Hollywood doesn't have a clue. I mean, they don't even live on the same block as love. Not even the same zip code as love. And, and so... We often are defining love based upon these romantic examples that come from literature or movies or poetry. But that is not love. Do you want to know what love is? What's the passion? That is love. It's brutal. I can barely get through it myself, and I've seen it several times. It's absolutely brutal. But that is what love is. That is a demonstration of love. That's what Jesus Christ has done for us. And if you will discover love, that's where you'll have to find it, is in the example of Jesus, in the nail-scarred hands of the Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God. That's what love is. And that's what has to define our love. And when we talk about following Jesus' example, that gets very risky. Because now I'm moving out of a place of self-absorption. I mean, we're human, I mean, we live in this house of skin at the moment. And, and it's very easy to get very inward focused. But Jesus' example was to lay down his life for others, to be a sacrifice for other people. I would, I would argue for you that you probably need some self-care and some me time, as terrible as it kind of sounds sometimes. But I would also argue even more that we need to learn to lay down our lives for those in our communities, for our families, for the kingdom, for world change. I mean, it's been said, you know, you really don't know how to live until you, know, until you find something worth dying for. And what, what are we living for right now? Is there anything worth laying our lives down for that we would passionately pursue? Now, I think Jesus laid his life down for the kingdom because the kingdom sets people free in ways that the government can never set people free. You can have legal freedoms and still be a slave. We've, I've witnessed it my entire life. I have been in bondage to things. And so we need to understand what did Jesus do? Well, Jesus laid down his life. He sacrificed for others. You should also remember that the others that he sacrificed were actually his enemies. He laid down his life for people who hated him. That's crazy. That's, uh, that's over the top. So let me get into my last scripture uh, that I think will stir this out, and I'll be done. <sighs> 2 Corinthians 2.14. I love this passage. Paul writes, Thank God. Well, that sounds good so far. He's made us his captives and continues to lead us along in Christ's triumphal procession. We're all in a parade. Christ is the victor. We're the captors. If that makes you uncomfortable, good. That means you're thinking. And that's always a good thing. We're the captors in Christ's triumphal procession. 
Now he, God, uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere like a sweet perfume. I wonder where Paul got that imagery from. I wonder if it might have been connected to the story that was so widely circulated about Mary of Bethany's anointing of Jesus. Like a sweet perfume, our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. But this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. The fragrance is the same. The receivers are different. To those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and doom. Remember, she anointed Jesus' body for burial. This whole thing was headed toward the tomb, not, just, not the resurrection just yet. But to those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. Who is adequate such a task as this. This is what a life of sacrifice is. It's your life that gives off an aroma of Christ in you, the hope of glory. It gives off the scent of the death of Jesus, the bloody, coppery smell that day on the cross. But it also gives away the life of Jesus those amazing fragrances used to embalm bodies. These, this scent rises up. And that is our task today, to live as a scent of Christ. There's a passage in Revelations, Revelation, excuse me. I always say it southern and add the S. Where Jesus corrects a church and he says, I wish you were hot or cold but you're lukewarm. We read it a couple weeks ago, or maybe it was last week. In that passage, hot or cold, Jesus isn't saying, I want you to be for me or against me. That's how we often read it. <laughs> He's not saying that at all. He's saying, I want you to be passionate or refreshing. <clears throat> and I, I could give you the history as to why it's that way. It's all related to how the church, this church at Laodicea got their water. But he says, I, I, want you to be, I want you to be passionate, truthful, honest, or I want you to be refreshing. That's, he's not saying, I want you to fish or cut bait or draw a line in the sand or whatever the cliche works for you. And so I, I want to remind us, as we take this passage where Paul is basically giving us in verses 1 and 2 of Ephesians 5 the tip of the spear, and he's about to build, or maybe the top of the pyramid, and he's about to build these this cases of how we get there, which we'll get into. We're coming. This is how Paul always does it. He starts with the ideal, and then he backs up to the foundation. And that's exactly what we're doing through this series. We are now at the ideal, and the ideal is imitate God, follow Jesus' example. You are to represent God the Father and God the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit in the world, in your world. And as we go through the series, we lay each foundation stone. But here's where this is the ideal. Imitate God. Follow Jesus' example. This is where we're headed. 
And so I want to challenge you with that. I want to challenge you with a life of sacrifice. I want to challenge you today as we're going to enter into a season of worship. In fact, when we get the worship team to go ahead and come on up, we're going to enter a season of worship, but I'm going to challenge you to, to sacrifice something today. Now, don't worry. I didn't bring any sheep or anything like that. As much fear as probably just passed through your minds. No, what we're going to do is uh, Ed Bolick built a cross for me for this series, and I really appreciate it. He's not here today. They're traveling, as many people are on the 4th. But what I want to challenge you to do is there are, there's a table up here, there's some post-it notes, and there's some thumbtacks, and we're going to worship a little while. And, and there's some, you, many of you raise your hands while I go, I'm not okay. And there's probably a reason you're not okay. There's probably something that needs to be let go of, something that needs to be put on Jesus Christ, something that needs to be sacrificed, put in his hands, covered in his love, a.k.a. his blood. And so I want to encourage you to do that. I'm, I'm going to. I, God, I was like, God, what is it I'm supposed to give up today? He gave it to me. I cried a little bit because I really didn't want to let go. <laughs> And, and so I'm going to write it down. I'm going to stick, and I want you to just stick it on the cross. And it's, there's some thumbtacks up there. There's post-it notes. If you're more timid and you just want to stick it up there, that's fine. I promise, and, unless you, you know, if you want to, if there's something you want to talk to me or Pastor Michael or Pastor Steve about, catch us at the end. We'll talk to you about it. We're not going to go through those and, and look for ways to, you know, delve into people's lives, okay? Um, we might pray, might do some praying, but I just want you, while we're worshiping, if there's something God gives you and he says, I want you to lay this down, I want you to come up, write it on a post-it note, stick it on the cross, put a thumbtack in it so it stays. And that's a beautiful wood finish and you're going to ruin it. And that is perfect. Isn't it? Isn't that perfect? Father, I pray that you would give us the courage to lay down our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Steve. Yes.